You're listening to Do the Damn Thing, episode four. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Do the Damn Thing podcast. My name is Liz Heron, and I am your personal cheerleader, helping you get off your butt and on your way to trying something new, facing your fears, or realizing your dreams. No matter what your damn thing is, whether it's asking for a raise at work, organizing your house, getting out of that toxic relationship, or pursuing your passion project, this show will provide you with real-world, tangible tips and inspiration so you can live the life you deserve. If you're ready to do the damn thing, then you have come to the right place. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Now let's jump in. Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of Do the Damn Thing. I am your host, Liz Heron, and this week I have a special treat for you. I'm going to be talking with Thomas Golubich, and if you don't know that name, you definitely know his work. He is a music supervisor whose credits include Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, Halt and Catch Fire, The Walking Dead, Grace and Frankie, Love, Ray Donovan, and the HBO series Six Feet Under. You definitely know this man's work. He is a phenomenal music supervisor, and I'm so excited to be sitting down and talking with him. On the show this week, Thomas and I are going to be talking about his journey to becoming one of the most sought-after music supervisors in the biz, and why facing failure is just like getting punched in the face. I hope you enjoy our conversation and get something out of it. I know I did. Hi, Thomas, and welcome to Do the Damn Thing. Thank you very much. I'm so excited that you are on the show. Thank you. This brand new show. Congratulations on the show. Thank you. I'm really, really excited. Um, and I'm so excited that you agreed to talk to me because I know that you are really, really busy right now. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to kind of fill us in on what, you, what you've been up to? Sure. Uh, well, I'm a music supervisor. Um, I have a company, Super Music Vision, which uh, is a team of four of us. Uh, we just wrapped up season four of Better Call Saul, which is a, an absolute masterpiece. Oh, I'm um, so excited! It's it's a, it's a, it's a, it's like Breaking Bad. It's like every season is better than the last one. So Ugh. we are we are um, we are just an astonishing team. So I feel very very lucky, uh, and we're just wrapping that up. We have a couple episodes left, so we're in the home stretch. But it is the most challenging uh, project imaginable, and it is uh, it's both rewarding and challenging in equal measure. So it's been a it's been a very exhausting and exhilarating summer. Um, I'm also the president of the Guild of Music Supervisors, and we have a few events that we do each year, including uh, an educational conference, which is happening on Saturday, uh, September 15th. And we are in the programming, fundraising, staffing, panel building mode of that. So there is uh, an enormous amount of work that is tied into every bit of that. Uh, And we just did an event on Friday celebrating the Emmy-nominated Music Supervisors uh, for 2018. Uh, which was an exciting show, and we had uh, all of the uh, the, the fantastic uh, supervisors: uh, Jen Malone from Atlanta, uh, Jennifer mm. Pikin from This Is Us, um, uh, Robin Erdang for The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and Jonathan Nolan, the showrunner for Westworld, who uh, music supervised the show as Sean O'Meara, which was a a name that he used. Uh, so they all came and they all spoke about uh, how music is built for those shows, which was fantastic. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah, so we've had a we've had a very uh, we've had a very busy summer. So, is your conference the one that you're doing now for September? Is that open to pu- the public, or is that just for members only? Nope, it is open to the public. It is uh, oh. we're expanding it actually. We the first year we did it was four years ago. We did it at Emerson College, the 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 Sunset Boulevard campus, and we had about twenty different panels uh, uh, throughout the the day. 
And then we did it again the next year. Uh, we had about 500 people come the first time. Second year, we had about 600 people. And we were kind of at capacity for the venue. So the third year, when we went back to Emerson, they said, we need more money and less people, which was the wrong direction. So uh, we <laughs> shopped around for another partner. And we ended up uh, pairing up with uh, the University of Southern California, USC, who have been uh, an absolutely wonderful partner for us. And so we did a test run last November. Are you a USC uh, alum by chance? I am. I'm a, I'm a Trojan, so I'm, that doesn't surprise me that they would be a wonderful partner. <laughs> oh, they've been great. They've been absolutely great. And so we we did a press run in November where we did a, uh, a specific panel about Emmy-nominated television, which was the first year that we'd had the Emmy for Outstanding Supervision. Um, and we did another one on video games, so it was an evening panel, and that went really well. So now we've expanded to be a full morning, afternoon, and evening. We're going to have uh, panels, and I'm sure you know the venue, Bovard Auditorium is going to be the home for uh, our morning, uh, our keynote speech and our morning panels. Then we're going to do, and since you know all these venues, I'll use the names, we're going to do a, a networking, a power networking lunch uh, at um, Queens Court and, San, uh, and um, uh, Simon Raymond Lawn. And then we're going to be moving into six different venues, including four venues at Taper Hall, uh, Schoenfeld, I'm oh, sorry, not Schoenfeld, uh, Simon Ramo Hall uh, and the um, uh, and Kaufman Hall uh, for educational panels uh, and then another okay. couple of venues. And then we're going to be having the having a dinner break. So everybody gets a chance to network and have fun again. And we open up the cocktail hour and we start having live performances. And that's going to be in Carson Center and in uh, the Songwriters Theater and in Schoenfeld. Oh, wow. So it should be a, a truly memorable evening. And it's tremendously ambitious and incredibly complicated. And I'm trying my best. <laughs> and you're all over yeah. campus, too, which is great. Yes, we're, we're literally moving people across campus in a really nice way. I love it. So it should be a really special night. I'm, ex I'm excited about it. Oh, very cool. And so now, so you did mention you were on um, Better Call Saul. You were also the music supervisor for Breaking Bad. Yes, I was. For, yes. Yeah, and for all of the seasons on on that show as well. Yep, from the from the very beginning. Great. So I would love to know just a little bit about like how you got into music supervision. Uh, I got into it a little bit randomly, um, as as many people of my generation have. I, I think there is no single path to music supervision. I think as you meet different music supervisors, you'll find that many of them came from uh, really divergent places. Some people came from uh, being in bands and, you know, realizing that they couldn't sustain a living doing that and suddenly found themselves good at storytelling and interested in yeah. doing that avenue. Some came from the label side and they were maybe A&R executives and they had good ears for talent um, and then realized as they moved into this field that they were actually good at storytelling as well. Um, you know, some people came from film school. I, I originally went to film school, so I was very much oh, trained as a writer and as a director and, and very much thinking in those terms. Um, but I went into journalism for a long time in between, so I kind of left that field for a good window. Um, but really, I think the, the most you know direct route for me into music supervision was through radio. I was a, a DJ at KCRW, uh, a host and a programmer for 10 years from 97 to 2007. And uh, in that window, was introduced to music supervision, which I didn't even know was a profession. I was going to that was one of my questions. Was like, did you even know that was a job? Because I feel like there's no so idea. many times that that no happened. idea. No, I just assumed like, you know, I guess directors put them in, you know, it's, yeah. most people don't know. And the great thing about production as a whole is the more you learn, the more you realize 
how many people are doing so many different things. I mean, it's funny. I, I was watching a movie with my mom, and she was like, I cannot believe all the people that they give the credits to. Like, she just <laughs> has this image that somehow a bunch of actors and a camera person show up, and you end up with show a movie. Show up somewhere. And, yeah. Yeah. Now, the, now you, your mom has an accent, clearly. Yes. She's German. Oh, she's German? Mm-hmm. Is that what, were you born in Germany, or are you... No, my, 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 I was actually born in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, my oh. dad is from Croatia, from uh, former Yugoslavia. My mom is from Germany. They met in Munich in the late six, actually mid 60s. And then uh, my dad started teaching uh, at Yale University and moved to the United States. And we later moved to Princeton, New Jersey, and then later to Boston. Oh, wow. And so I grew up mostly in Boston. I was actually born in New Haven, but I went to school first in Germany, in Hamburg. So my first language was German. Ah, okay. And so, and you've got a crazy story about how you learned English. Oh yeah, um, so, <laughs> which I love that. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, well, it's, I guess it's one of those things that I, I hope it's not apocryphal at this point. But it, you know, my my mom basically said that she would see me sitting in front of the television, Indian style, literally staring at the television, mm-hmm. repeating everything that Peter Jennings would say on the news. Peter <laughs> Jennings was a, a was the I think ABC anchor back in those days. And yes. For whatever reason, I found his voice to be what I thought was the authoritative American uh, accent. So I would just, and it turns out he's Canadian. So that was, I think, a a misnomer on my part. But, you know, I think at age six, I didn't really have that kind of uh, nuanced understanding of the background of of anchors. But uh, that's how I learned English. I just used to repeat what he said. That's, I mean, that's a great kind of role model as far as speaking. I just remember that he was the person that we always listened to. Like that was the ABC News was. Mm. And to your point, yeah, like he was like the authoritative voice of the news. And Yeah, he had a sobriety to him. He, he I never felt like he was. I always felt like he was somebody who for whom objectivity and clarity were really important. And I didn't feel like he added artificial cadences to language Mm -hmm. and you know a lot of the sort of things that anchors now do like I have a hard time watching almost any news now because it feels like uh just the worst instincts of uh of uh, public you know relations information and and the worst instincts on on broadcasting in colleges are now officially you know the rules of the road for most you know on-air journalism so I do miss the days of Peter Jennings I do too I do too. So you, so you were working at KCRW. Well, not working. I was actually a volunteer there. So I, I oh, should, okay. yeah. So yeah, we, the, if you were a DJ after midnight, which I was, you were not paid. I, I don't know if ah. that's changed now. Um, but uh, it was, you know, like many of the best things in life, it was a g- wonderful volunteer experience. So I, I, I really can't complain. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And then, so then how did you, how did you get your first job um, or your first gig in music supervision? Um, I, was friends with Gary Calamar, who was the uh, the music librarian at KCRW, and the two of us would hang out on Tuesday afternoons, basically trying to make girls laugh and, and entertain each other and, and listen to music, and we got along really well. And he had been working with a guy named G. Mark Roswell, who was a music supervisor looking for some creative partners, and I think he was a fan of Gary's show. And Gary showed some interest in the field. So they began to work together on a project. And Gary recommended that um, I speak to, to Gilly, G. Mark Roswell. And Gilly uh, was looking for an intern at the time. So I was uh, very happy and excited to seize the opportunity to work with a, a veteran music supervisor. So I basically just organized his ridiculous collection of CDs and uh, would put post-it notes on albums I thought were really good and, and put little clever words. So 
if he was on the phone, he could pull up a CD and say, Chibo Mato, this really interesting Japanese duo based out of New York City and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I just was like helping him uh, with his job as much as I could and kind of helping to influence him a little bit with my taste and excitement about bands at the time. This is, uh, I guess, 1999 or late 90s. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Well, I love that, like, yeah, that you just kind of took that kind of leap of faith, right? That it's just like, all right, yeah, this opportunity presents itself and why not? I'm a big fan of making yourself useful. You know, I, I mean, this is probably because my parents are immigrants um, and we didn't really, you know, our family was not like a rah-rah American family. We were, my mom is very much German and my dad is very much Yugoslav and very weird in many ways. Uh, so <laughs> they never really became American. So in a sense, when you're not kind of, you know, trying to disappear, the next thing is to make yourself useful. And so I yeah. think that if you have a good work ethic and if you uh, see things that you're excited about, uh, it's really important to, to seize those opportunities and, and to make yourself useful and, and to not think about yourself so much and think more about how can I be of help? How can I be of service? And I think that once you begin to think in those terms, you will probably either get exploited or you'll find people who really recognize your talents and help to cultivate it. Yeah. How do you feel like you still bring that, you know, make yourself useful motto to what you do now on Better Call Saul? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, uh, it, it's a little bit like it's funny, uh, when you talk to people, you know, you can tell very quickly where their perspectives are, you know. So if somebody is, is calling you and is interested in, in potentially working for you or something like that, and one of the first questions they're asking is about salary and how many hours mm -hmm. and what the commitment is. You kind of get a sense that they're already trying to figure out, is this worth my while? And so I'm immediately thinking like, you know what? I don't know you. I don't really have any investment in you. And if you're already asking me about how I can prove myself to be worthy to you, we're not really starting off on the right foot. So I'm going to say, thank you so much for your time. I wish you the best of luck. Um, for people who just say, look, I just want to be in the room. And if I can be helpful, that's great. Uh, you become a team player. And, you know, in a show like Better Call Saul, it, it's exceedingly complicated. And we are all trying to help one another tell the best story possible. And so I think, in a sense, one of the reasons that we work so well as a team, and we have been since the Breaking Bad time period, which is, you know, a good number of years now. Yeah. Um, you know, we just had our 10th year anniversary. Uh, we are we still love each other and we still respect each other and we still have the sense of awe at each other's talents. And, you know, I, I just want to be a good ball player. I want to be able to show up. And, you know, when people throw pitches at me, I want to swing hard and I want to hit a few home runs and, and at the very least make sure that I, I help the story and I contribute. And I think yeah. that that is one of the reasons that that show is so, you know, successful is that it's just made by people who are really clearly passionate about what they do and are very selfless in the process of doing the best work possible. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I know that you were saying, like, you know, going from KCRW into kind of the, that the internship. What's another time that you can kind of because this shows all about taking action, whether it's you know to your point, like if you're hitting a home run or just moving moving around the bases, right? Like it all kind of moves you forward. But what was a time that you can kind of remember taking just a leap of faith that really paid off for you? I mean, I think you know, uh, well, KCRW was one. I would say. Yeah. I um. The context of the time period was I had moved to Los Angeles in, God, I'm not sure what year it is. I want to say mid-90s. And I had come here to write a book. And uh, it was this oh. rather pretentious book about the end of the American empire. And, and, and Bush uh, Jr. was in office. And there was a sense mm -hmm. that the, the country was slowly sliding into oblivion. And 
I thought, well, let's go to a city that has a massive separation between rich and poor, you know, has a cultural differentiation and a battle for English being the official language and, you know, a, a struggle with people feeling very, you know, anti-immigrant sentiments. And I thought all the mm -hmm. things that makes an empire fall apart um, and expansionistic wars as well, because the Iraq war was going on at the time. Uh, it, it was a lot of stuff that was all kind of coming together. So it seemed like a great time to write a book uh, and comparing it to Rome and sort of where Rome was in a similar time period. So oh, okay. big high concept book. And what I found was that the more research I did, the more I was impressed with other people's writing and their thoughtfulness and the less impressed I was with my own. And the more <laughs> I found the opinions to be kind of pretentious and, and, and they sounded good, but I don't think that they had a lot of substance. So I slowly fell out of love with the book, and after about 330 pages, I just shelved it and uh, wow. and just said, like, you know what, this is not this is not the way I want to spend the next you know couple of years. And uh, that was a great choice ultimately because um, I fell in love with the city of Los Angeles in the meantime, a place I did not come to fall in love with, and I found myself really transfixed by it. And a big part of that was KCRW. I, I found this radio station and. Uh, I would literally drive in my beat up uh, Toyota Celica from 1982 and drive <laughs> around the city and just listen to the radio. And that became the soundtrack to the city. And, and LA is a city that you get to know driving through it. It's, yeah. it's just a city that you can fall in love with as you're driving through it. And I, I really had that experience. And whether it was, you know, listening to Joe Frank's, you know, uh, you know, uh, astonishing, you know, uh, uh, poetic, you know, uh, Flights of Fancy, or whether it was um, Bruno Guez, who was a, a DJ who had a wonderful uh, show called Shortwave, which was very kind of uh, avant-garde electronic music. Um, I just found myself really excited by what these DJs were doing and, and the vision that they had and, and the sense of exploratory wonder that they were doing. And so in listening to these radio shows and frequently taping them on cassettes back in those days oh, yeah. um, and listening to them in my car as I drove around the city, I... I found myself kind of finding a new voice, and in doing so, uh, I decided I wanted to start an internet magazine, which uh, was a total disaster, and I <laughs> lost a ton of money very quickly. Um, I had worked at uh, 20th Century Fox as a, uh, a sort of a, a, a minor level consultant um, and had done this radical scam in order to be able to get internet. I was one of the first people in the lot to have internet and basically oh, wow. tried to set up this whole uh, magazine that would be on, set up through the um, the H not the HR through the the tech support uh, people from every different studio, I tried to set it up as the as the internet became available to people working on those lots. They would have the LA Magnet be the homepage. That was my goal. And then I thought okay. if we get all these young people working for studios living in LA, a lot of them transplants, getting to go to restaurants and going to shows and all these other things, I thought well this would be a great way to be able to bring some money in and to be able to kind of make it self-generating but I was too early and I was gonna say I feel like that you were a bit ahead of your time on that uh, one it, it did not go well yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody I tried to convince it just said sure can you show me an example and there really wasn't one and no. so the money dried up and then I put my own money into it and then I put more money into it and at the end of it I had you know my girlfriend and I had broken up she had taken the cats the internet magazine was dead I had lost a ton of money and it was just a mess. So oh, man. that led me to volunteering at KCRW because they had just announced that they were going to do their own website. And I thought, well, look, I really failed at this. And if yeah. anything else, I can maybe be helpful 
in helping them not make the same mistakes. And so I went and uh, and volunteered. Oh, I love that. And I love the idea that like there was a time when people were like, oh, yeah, I'm going to make a website. And I was like, oh, right. Nobody now if you can't even yeah. fathom not having a website. No, right? like, everybody has one. Individuals have a website. Yeah. But I do remember that back in the days before every everybody had a site or every company had a site. Like it was a new well, thing if somebody had a website. Let alone a broadcasting one. I mean, I think they were looking towards broadcasting as well. And it was like, you know, I remember us writing the the proposals for how they would be built and you know, I'd have to learn, you know, coding language, which, you know, I didn't know how to code. I just had to learn how not how to sound like I knew how to code. Yes. And, you know, it was it was a very exciting experience. But what I loved about that whole volunteering thing was that I got to take my personal failure into contributing to somebody else not failing. And most importantly, they said, you know, you seem to be having fun coming in on Tuesdays doing this. We're almost wrapped up with the proposal would you be interested in volunteering in the music library? Because you, you talk a lot about music. And that music library at KCRW was just, I mean, it was like, uh, you know, oh, it was like Willy Wonka, you know. You're like just, a kid's candy store. <laughs> totally. You're just like, oh, my God. I mean, just in like the African section alone, like decades and decades and oh decades of music. And whether it was like old vinyl records or whether CDs or re-releases, it was just so beautiful. So I, it was a field day for me, and I had so much fun in there. And just in playing around in that library, at some point, uh, several of the DJs heard me play stuff that they'd never heard before. And oh, wow. somebody said, you know, have you ever thought about putting a demo together? And Chris Reedus was the one who encouraged it, and he said, yeah, put a demo together. Let's have a listen to it. So I tried to imitate the KCRW DJ sound as well as I could and played music I loved, and they, they let me have a show. That's amazing. I love that. I'm a big proponent of kind of volunteering, volunteerism as a way into like really finding out what you want to do or like what your skills are. And after I graduated from college, I didn't have a job. And so I wound up volunteering for a political organization and then I wound up working in politics for like three and a half years, which was so not what I ever thought I would do. So I love the idea that like that sort of stuff, like just kind of giving of your time, either things that you're passionate about or things that you're interested in and just kind of using that as kind of a gateway to like, well, let's see, like who, you know, like who knows, who knows where that could lead. It, it makes you resourceful because I think that, you know, it, 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 the problem in many ways is once you get paid for something, your relationship mm -hmm. changes. Yes. Now, it, again, it changes likely for the better because everybody should get paid for their work. But the problem ends up being that if you're not ready to commit to something in the right way, you know, it can become a very difficult thing. And, you know, I just look at how many places I go to where it's clear that nobody did a good job at vetting people when they were interviewing people for these jobs. These people now are just simply showing up at a job that they don't like with yeah. people that they don't care about and just kind of getting through the day so they can pay whatever rent they have. And I, I understand that, you know, not everybody has the luxury to do what they love, but I do yeah. really push people to be resourceful. And I think that, you know, like I didn't have any family money. I basically worked and did like graphic design and freelance writing, and I worked for everybody I could to just cover the cost of rent. I lived very, very meagerly. Um, I didn't have a lot of expenses. I just needed basically money for gas and for food and covering rent. And in doing so, I was able to do almost all that work uh, in the later hours. So. I, I don't sleep much. So in a way that created an opportunity to put my energies where I really wanted to. So it was very easy to say, I no longer want to write about, you know, <laughs> this department's really cool machine, which is going to be part of an open house coming up. You know, I now yeah. want to, you know, put my energy into this radio station or 
into telling stories with music, which is you know what what led me down the path that I'm on now. I love that. And so when you started out, I'm guessing it was just you and you mentioned you have a team now of four. How did how did how did that happen? How did you grow and and kind of what does your team look like now? Yeah, I, growing is 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 tricky in music supervision. Um, you know, as president of the Guild of Music Supervisors, one of my primary aims is to help work towards fairness in pay. Uh, we are a woefully underpaid profession. Um, it is uh, a problem across the board. Um, the the only people that seem to be doing okay are those who are working in house. Um, the majority of music supervisors are not paid uh, living wages. They have to take on a lot of projects to make ends meet. Uh, there are very few uh, successful companies that do simply just music supervision. Most of those have one big client that throws a lot of work their way, so there's sort of an inherent stability. Um, it's a very hard profession, and I think that it also takes a very unique set of skills, and especially now with so much more streaming content and so many more projects, uh, what ends up happening is supervisors are paid less money for longer stretches of time, and there's more projects available, so they are now scampering to do more projects at once, find a way to balance it all, trying to expand by bringing new team members on board, and then hoping that the trajectory of their career will continue to grow. And sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes yeah. you have a bad year, or you take on some investments and some expenses, or you give everybody a raise because things are going well, and then the year doesn't go so well, and you can't undo those raises. So. Yeah it becomes a situation where it's a very difficult business to stay in. And uh, I've grown very gradually. Um, I had interns for the first few years and would kind of cycle through them over the course of six months or so. And, and yeah. I didn't, you know, I, I think most of them end up getting great jobs elsewhere. And I think they also got a chance to see what a struggle it was to make ends meet as a music supervisor. So I think many of them were very relieved to get out of the game. Uh, I, I think in many ways that probably was a... Uh, uh, I probably my, my my early part of my profession was probably a, a warning sign, you know, more than anything else. Um, but I think the work was really good. And if I look back on the years I worked on Six Feet Under or on Breaking Bad or on The Walking Dead or any of those projects, they were all really high quality. And I'm very proud of that work. And I feel really good about that work. But uh, I was barely making ends meet. And uh, yeah. I was sort of able to at some point through having a number of TV shows at the same time, bring on another person. Uh, that was Yvette Matoyer. And the two of us worked together uh, through the, the, the beginning to the middle, I should say the second season, I think of Breaking Bad. And uh, we were lucky enough to have uh, several projects through AMC. So we were able to kind of balance things out, which was great. So we ended up having that wonderful client that gave us multiple projects and we kept on seizing upon them. We did a show called Rubicon and we did a, a mini series called The Prisoner. And then that led to Halt and Catch Fire, which was an absolutely wonderful project yes. and one I'm so proud of. Um, so, and, and The Walking Dead as well. So in a way, that allowed us to expand. And then as we got busier, we were able to take on a, a third person. And Michelle Johnson, who uh, had worked with me on a project I did for Sundance as an editor, um, told me one day that she was interested in working in music supervision. And the timing was just perfect. And so she became the third member of the team. And we worked together for a number of years. And then at some point, we got to the point, and we were still working out of my house, that we needed another person. It just felt like everybody was, was, was a little bit you know, too thin, and we were all mm -hmm. scrambling all the time. <clears throat> and we met a wonderful uh, young man at the time, uh, Garrett McElver. And Garrett uh, started working with us, and uh, he was on board within, I think, a few months. 
And so we were now a group of four. And uh, last year, actually two years ago, uh, we were finally able to get out of my house and uh, out to an <laughs> office, which was a great relief and allowed me to have a personal life for the first time in over a decade. And so uh, that was sort of the way it all grew. And we are now um, working together uh, at, in the mayor building on the corner of Hollywood and Western in this wonderful uh, Art Deco building and office. It's the old Louis B. Mayer uh, MGM stomping ground. So it has lots of history in the hallways. Oh, I love it. It's been great. So yeah, and we're 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 very busy, and we're we're working uh, on a lot of projects. Was it like having all those people kind of in your, working out of your house for that long? Oh, it was, it was ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, it was like, and I was single at the time, so I, I was literally ushering girlfriends out at like eight forty-five. <laughs> so by the time nine o'clock rolled oh, around, um, the, the, I'd have the people coming in, and and I, I had my, um, I had a tiny little office, you know, like a tiny little space in by a window upstairs. And then in the downstairs, which is now a spare bedroom, thank you very much, uh, was at the time an office for Yvette and Michelle, who were literally back to back, you know, working on their spots. And then we had Garrett in the music library, which was, you know, another cramped space. So I, I have to give them all tremendous credit. They were always very elegant about it, and they were very uh, hardworking. And I think the reason we were able to move into an office was because of our collective goodwill. But yeah. it was definitely cramped confines, and uh, it lost its charm you know, pretty early in the process. <laughs> I kind of imagine you having to like, you know, kind of do the like Flintstones, like end of day work bell in order to like get all of those people out of your house. Oh, my God. Uh, I mean, the honest truth is it was never and this is partly my problem is I, I tend to work on a lot. So I, I don't do well with free time. There's always something else that can get done. So I think in many ways it was for them uh, a, a self uh, self protection of saying, OK, it's 630. I got to wrap now. I'm going yeah. to get out of here. So. I think, it, and then I would just keep on going, um, and that was the other problem with working from home is that you don't ever really have a separation. Now I have, you know, a, a fiance, and I have a home, and I got a dog, and I know that if I leave the office, I can head home and just enjoy not thinking about work for a little while. Although yeah. that that there's plenty of nights when I'm just calling and saying, "Yeah, my dog is staring at me, and we're gonna have to be here for a few hours." <laughs> Oh, that's great. So um, what kind of advice would you give to someone who de- dedicated to that book and, and just, I mean, you were 330 pages into a book and you decided to shelve it. And I think a lot of times people have a hard time kind of admitting like, oh, this isn't for me, or this was a mistake and kind of feeling the need to you know see those things through. How are you able to just kind of put that aside and say, no, I'm not, I'm not like, this isn't right for me. I'm going to go down a different path. I mean, I think, you know, um, there's an integrity in failure. Oh, I love that. (laughs) And I think that the more you recognize that failure is part of a process, the more you stop fearing it. Like, I I grew up in Boston. I grew up in Boston in the 1980s, and it was a relatively violent place. And I think that, you know, everybody's afraid of getting punched in the face until you get (laughs) punched in the face. And then you suddenly realize, it's really not that big a deal. Like, you know, if you lose a tooth, that's a big deal. If you break your nose, that's a big deal. But the truth is most of the time, the punch is really not that big a deal. And so I think in a sense, it's the same thing with failing. Once you've been punched in the face, you kind of recognize like, (laughs) I don't have to be so afraid of it anymore because I know what it feels like and I'll get over it. In the same way that when you try to do something uh, and you're really committed to it, you have to have the integrity to look at it objectively at some point and say, 
I know I put a lot of time in this. I know that I've, I've invested a lot in this. I know that this is something that I really wanted to have happen, but it just didn't. Yeah. Like the timing was wrong and the story was wrong. The premise was wrong. Or I was just simply in the wrong part of my life in doing it. And I think that's happened to me many times before. I, I'd say the internet magazine, the LA Magnet, was yeah. definitely me having a lot of, I think, really good ideas in retrospect, but simply being the wrong guy at the wrong time and just didn't have that partner that said, I am exactly the ingredient you need to make this work. So yeah. it failed. And, you know, I lost, you know, a lot in that time period. But it was just money and time and a relationship, you know, <laughs> all things that, you know, believe it or not, we all do get over at some point. Yeah. So I think that in many ways, you know, engineering failure into your process is not necessarily a bad idea. I love that. I love that. I'm writing that down. Um, <laughs> uh, so I know that, yeah, like you're, you're busy with, you know, being the president of the Guild of Music Supervisors and, and, and breaking, uh, breaking bad, better call Saul. Um, but is there anything right now, like any kind of like idea that you're having or kind of thing that you're a goal that you're kind of working toward or something that's kind of outside of work that's your damn thing, right? About what's, what's the thing that you're kind of thinking about doing now? And like, I always say like, you know, I have friends who think about running marathons or who, um, yeah, like to your point, like want to write a book or something, but is there anything outside of, of your work stuff that you're kind of thinking about doing or kind of just starting like maybe there's just a seed kind of planted like oh maybe I might be interested in like learning how to do something different or doing something kind of out of your comfort zone I mean I, I think it, it depends for each person on the chapter in their life that they're in you know when you're in your 20s everything is possible, you know, because you, you, you don't know any better. So, I mean, there's a reason that people have children in their 20s and get married in their 20s because they haven't, you know, learned the hard way that that isn't always necessarily the best idea or, you know, the right choice. Um, and for some people it is and some people it isn't. But when you're 20, you don't know any better. So you guide and you make the best of it. And a lot of times it turns out great. Yeah. Um, I think when you're in your 30s, you spend a lot of time trying to analyze the choices that you've made and figuring out, is there something else I really want? You know, some people who are lucky enough to be doing exactly what they want are usually looking at, you know, what's in front of them and are very focused on that. I think those who are less in love with what they have are, are frequently beginning to have fantasies about, oh, I'd like to become a race car driver. Or I'd like to, you know, learn how to play piano or learn Spanish or I want to, you know, write a screenplay. And I think that when you're in your 30s, you know, you, you kind of figure out, how far ahead are you looking and how effective are you at being able to make those dreams into a reality? The ones who are, are good at it are actually able to navigate out of a bad job or a bad relationship or uh, uh, you know, a, 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 a compromised situation and work their way towards something else. Um, and sometimes people get unlucky. You know? And I think that's also another factor, too, is that a lot of people just, you know, their mom gets sick or they have a child that has uh, disabilities and they have to focus on that. And some of the choices get made for them. So I think that it's a luxury to be able to make those choices sometimes. But if you have that luxury and if you have the wherewithal to move forward, you end up finding something that really clicks. I think when you get into your 40s, you're now moving at a pretty good clip. And you're either a very unhappy person because the choices you made did not work out. And you're living either in a fantasy or you've given up on that. Or 
you're feeling very good about where you've done and you're focusing on what's in front of you. And I'm, I'm rounding 50 soon. And I think that I feel that there's a lot more I want to do. And it's more like the glory of having eight lives and pursuing all these things I'd love to do. Yeah. And at the same time, being pragmatic and saying, you know what, I have only so many hours in the day. Um, I really want to spend my time with people I really love and care about and respect and, and want to feel uh, the warmth of their genuine affection and their understanding of me as a person. And that requires some time management and that requires, you know, making your priorities smart and being able to see a forward trajectory that is positive yeah. and that the impact that you're having on people around you is positive. So for me, in many ways, I'm trying to make each vehicle in my life, whether it is Super Music Vision or whether it's the Guild of Music Supervisors or if it's any of my other sort of art projects, that they're always things that are vehicles for positive, uh, inspired energy and, and collaboration. And so I think that right now I'm very much in a collaborative mode. And I think that the Guild and, and SMV and my working music supervision are where I'm most effective. At some point, I think that that will change. And then I'll be able to say, hey, I had a great run with this. Let me try to do something else. And, you know, I think the signs will be really obvious when that moment comes. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you loved what you heard, please subscribe, share with your friends, or leave a review on iTunes. As we grow the show, I would love to hear from you. What damn thing did you accomplish this week? Is there a topic you're dying for me to explore on the show? Be sure to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Do The Damn Thing Show and let me know. I can't wait to connect with you and hear all about the action you're taking in your life. In the meantime, get out there and do the damn thing. Hi, I'm Jessica Jardin. And I'm Marcy Jarrow. We're the hosts of Kardashian It, a podcast about all things Kardashian here on Campfire Media. The first family of Calabasas is back with season 15 of Keeping Up with the Kardashians. We're recapping episodes each week and covering a never-ending news cycle of the rapidly expanding Kardashian universe. Which includes crossovers with your favorite rap and sports stars. And this season we can expect family drama, secret pregnancies, the Chloe Tristan cheating scandal, and cover-up. And let us not forget Kanye's pre-album drop meltdown or Kim's new Trump allegiance. Hey, even if you aren't a fan of this family, their reach stretches to so many areas of pop culture, you're not going to want to miss our examination of the ultimate celebrity phenomenon. So check out Kardashian It, a podcast about all things Kardashian. And remember, the devil works hard, but Kris Jenner works harder. Kardashian It on Campfire Media. Campfire.